And good morning, church family. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. We're going to look at the entire chapter together. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 1037. As you're turning there, I'm going to warn you that this is a particularly challenging chapter of the book. I earned my keep trying to make sense of it myself this week, but I have labored hard and I have have worked to make it understandable to all of you, and I believe that if you will be fully engaged this morning, that you will greatly profit from this time in God's Word. So with all of that in mind, let's now go to him in prayer and ask for his help. Our Lord, we do give you thanks for the great privilege of gathering together and opening your word and considering a portion of it. Lord, we pray that you would help us, especially today, as we look here at Revelation chapter 17, as we explore the images that are presented to us here, as we seek to interpret them faithfully, and then as we see how all of this applies to our lives in the here and now. We pray that you would be with us during this time, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we have been in the book of Revelation for a number of months now. By now you know that most of this book is a prophecy of future events, and that most of it is written in a genre called apocalyptic, which means that the truths that it contains are often wrapped in fantasy imagery. Uh, So, for example, in chapter 12, we were introduced to a dragon with many heads and horns and crowns. And we learn that this dragon represents a real being, namely the devil. And that each of the features of that dragon speak to a part of the devil, his nature, his works, and so forth. And then in chapter 13, we were introduced to a beast with many heads and horns and crowns. And he had feet like a bear's feet and mouth like a lion's mouth. And we learn that this image was teaching us about the coming Antichrist and about his nature and his works. Well, here in Revelation chapter 17, we encounter another vision and another image. And the ESV describes this image as the prostitute, I'll simply call her the harlot or the unfaithful woman. And like the others, this image is a figurative representation of a real entity which will come to full expression during the tribulation period. We're going to explore the image together, we'll interpret it, and then we will apply its teachings to our lives. Okay, so that's where we're headed. Let's jump into the chapter now. And just a brief word about the structure of this chapter. Okay, verses 1 and 2 offer us a sneak preview of the vision. And then verses 3 through 18 give us the vision proper. Okay, so let's let's look at it knowing the structure. Verse 1 begins, this is the Apostle John writing, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth 
have become drunk. Right? So as chapter 17 begins, we meet this angel. And the angel is identified as one of the seven angels who poured out the seven bowls of God's judgment. Okay, remember, by this point in Revelation, we've come all the way through the tribulation period. We saw God dispense the seal judgments, then the trumpet judgments, and then the bowl judgments. With the pouring out of that seventh bowl, the tribulation is over. Now we're in chapter 17, and we encounter one of the angels who poured out one of those last judgments. What this angel wants us to do is to circle back and go through the tribulation once more. Because there is another entity which will be at work during the tribulation period that this angel wants us to know about, wants us to understand, and to prepare ourselves for. The angel identifies this entity as a harlot. Now, what is a harlot? Well, very simply, it's an unfaithful woman whose full-time job is to encourage other people to be unfaithful too. So that's what this entity represents, or this woman represents, an entity that is unfaithful to God and who also seeks to make others unfaithful to God. And you'll notice she's not simply described as a harlot, but as the great So this one will be the ultimate expression of unfaithfulness, the ultimate encourager of unfaithfulness in the world. Just to reinforce that, the angel adds here, verses 1 and 2, that she'll be seated on many waters, which means she will have global influence. And it says that she will consort with the rulers of the world as well as with the masses. So all over the world, in every level of society... She will extend her influence. She will model unfaithfulness, and she will entice others to join her in unfaithfulness. That's the sneak preview. Now we look at the vision proper. Here we'll learn all of the necessary details about this unfaithful woman. Okay, we we look to verse 3. It says, and he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. Okay, so now you see the angel taking John on this this journey to witness this vision. He leads John spiritually into a wilderness. Okay, a wilderness is a barren place. It's a chaotic place, often associated with ungodliness and judgment in Scripture. Remember, it was... It was the wilderness that the Israelites were led into after they had been unfaithful to God. And it was the the devil um, who chose the wilderness to tempt Jesus in. So the wilderness has very negative connotations. And the angel spiritually leads John into a vision, and here he sees a wilderness. And now the image of the woman appears. And John offers us six details about this woman. Let's read of them together. First, he notes her posture. He says, I saw a woman, this is the same woman we were given the sneak preview of, saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. And that beast was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. 
So now John sees the woman that the angel has been telling him about. He notices that she's sitting on a beast. And the word translated sitting here could also be rendered as riding. So he is watching this woman ride on the back of the beast. And you see this is a a hideous beast. It's the color red. It's covered with blasphemous names. And it has these seven heads and ten horns. We'll consider those in a little bit. But let's continue on with the description of the woman herself. John goes on in verse 4. It says, And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet. This means she will enjoy great wealth and power. And he says, middle of verse 4, that she was adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. This means she will live in opulence. And then the end of verse 4, it says, And holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. Now this is really important because it means that this woman is not who she seems to be. If you look at her superficially, she is intimidating as she rides on this beast, and she is beautiful and desirable. She is rich and she is opulent. But if you get beyond the surface, if you look within her, for example, inside that beautiful cup that she's holding, what you find are abominations and impurities. So this, this woman, this entity, beautiful and desirable on the outside, but on the inside, utterly corrupt. And then verse 5. It says, and on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Now, here's the name. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Now, back in our study of chapter 14, we noted that the word Babylon is used two ways in the scriptures. It can be used of the literal city, which was notorious for its paganism. Or it can also be used as a figure of speech to describe any organized rebellion against God. And I believe it's this latter interpretation that's in view here. And so this woman, this great harlot, she is rich, she is powerful, she is opulent, she is is attractive on the outside but corrupt on the inside, and she is representative of organized rebellion against God. She is the ultimate expression, in fact, of humanity's rejection of God and the source of many of humanity's great abominations. And then verse 6 says, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs, of Jesus. And so she is violently opposed to the true people of God. She persecutes them, she murders them. Now, if you look at the end of verse 6, we have the Apostle John's reaction to this vision. He writes, When I saw her, I marveled greatly. Which means that when he caught this image, In his mind, he was confused 
and, and bewildered and maybe a little bit horrified and disgusted. He was all of these things at once. And he was asking himself, what am I supposed to make of this? What is it? What does it represent? Perhaps you're having the same reaction right now as you read of this woman riding the beast and you hear of this strange combination of beautiful and ugly attributes. What are we to make of all of this? Well, in verses 7 through 14, the angel offers us an interpretation. So let's see what he has to tell us. Verse 7, the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. And now he goes on to give us his interpretation. He begins with that beast, the beast the woman is riding upon. Here's the interpretation. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Okay, so now we know who this beast represents. The beast is the Antichrist and the kingdom which the Antichrist will build. Now, you remember the Antichrist. We learned all about him in chapters 11 through 13. We learn that the Antichrist is a future political figure. He will rise to power during the tribulation period. Now, at some point during the tribulation, probably the midpoint, he's going to receive a mortal wound, but then he'll fully recover so that it will appear as if he has died and risen like Christ himself. And so the unregenerate world will flock to him as a savior. This will catapult the Antichrist into the very heights of world power. But what they and the Antichrist won't realize is that he will come to a terrible end as Christ snuffs him out at his return. And this is what verse 8 is reminding us of. He is the one who was and is not and is to come. The one who lived and seemed to die and then rise again. The one who reigns for a short time, but then, but then is overtaken by Christ. The beast is Antichrist. And in fact, the physical description of the beast here in chapter 17 is virtually identical to the description that we found in chapters 11 through 13. But now, verses 9 through 11, the angel offers more details about this beast. This will confirm our initial assessment about who this represents. Look at verses 9 through 11 with me. It says, Now this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. And as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. Okay, so first we had the interpretation of the beast itself. This is Antichrist and the kingdom he will build. Now the angel turns to those seven heads of the beast. He explains that the seven heads 
remind us of the, the historical position that Antichrist will be in. Okay? He, his kingdom will not arise in a vacuum. Rather, it will be the culmination of all the godless kingdoms that came before. Seven godless kingdoms, all represented in Antichrist. And the angel says, five of them have already passed. We know what five those are. We learned about them in Daniel and earlier in Revelation. Those five are Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. The angel says one is presently active. Well, in John's day, the Roman Empire was active. And then he says there's one yet to come. That is the Antichrist kingdom, future to John, future also to us. So the beast is the Antichrist in his kingdom. The seven heads of the beast speak to the fact that this Antichrist, this kingdom of Antichrist, will be the ultimate, the final expression of humanity's political rebellion against God. All of the prior godless empires of the world, they will all find their grand climax in the Antichrist's kingdom. And then these curious words in verse 11, as for the beast that was and is not, it's an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. Speaking to the fact that Antichrist will die and rise again. His empire is the seventh godless empire. He will begin as the seventh godless ruler of the seventh godless empire. He will die. He will rise. He'll be like a new man, like an eighth man, but still over the seventh godless kingdom. Simply a description of the life and career of Antichrist. So once more, the beast itself, Antichrist and his kingdom, the heads of the beast, speak to the historical place of Antichrist's kingdom. Now we turn to the horns of the beast. What do those represent? Well, verses 12 through 14. It says, And the ten horns that you saw are the ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. And these are of one mind. And they hand over their power and authority to the beast, first part of verse 14, and they will make war on the Lamb. This reminds us about the structure of the coming kingdom of Antichrist, reminding us that this kingdom will be organized as a confederacy of nations, each with its own leader, but all leaders of one mind and all under the administrative control of Antichrist, and all together, as men of one mind, they will war against Christ. They will persecute his people. They will martyr the saints. At, at Armageddon, they will seek to wage military war against the returning Christ himself. But they won't even have a chance. Look at the second part of verse 14. The Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. The kingdom of Antichrist will be the grand culmination of all of the godless empires of the world. All of it coming to a head in his kingdom. That kingdom will function as a confederacy of nations, but they will all be of one mind. They will war against God's people. They will war against Christ himself when he comes, but Christ will snuff them out. This is the interpretation of the beast. 
And the woman will ride this beast as far as she can. The woman is not the beast, but she is riding the beast. She is partnered with the beast throughout his career. Let's talk more about that woman now. The angel gets to this in verses 15 through 18. The woman riding the beast back. It says, And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Again, just a reminder that the woman riding the beast will have global influence. She's on the back of the beast. She's riding the beast. Everywhere that Antichrist's kingdom goes, she will be there too. Wherever Antichrist extends his influence, she will extend her influence. They will be partnered together in this unholy alliance. Just as Antichrist will be over multitudes and nations and languages, so will she be. Now verse 16. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. So you see this, this woman, she will be partnered with the beast, but only because the beast will think it advantageous for a time. The reality is that the beast, the Antichrist... And the horns, the kings under Antichrist, they will all despise this woman. They will partner with her because it will be practically advantageous. But they will despise her the whole time. They'll see her as a rival to be defeated, not as an ally to be joined with forever. And so, verse 16 says, when the time is right, they will turn on her. The beast will turn on the woman that rides its back. And they will bring her to destruction. And now skipping to verse 18, here is where the identity of this woman finally begins to crystallize. The angel says, and the woman that you saw, this is who she is, She is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Friends, that's a reference to Babylon. Remember at the start of the vision, the woman had this wrap on her head with the words, Babylon the Great. And now we're told that she herself is Babylon the Great. Or more precisely, friends, she is that great system of counterfeit religion which Babylon represents. You see, friends, from the Tower of Babel onward, the word Babylon has become synonymous with organized false religion. Consider, as one example, Isaiah 21, verse 9, it says, Behold, here comes a troop of riders, horsemen in pairs, and one said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the images of her gods are shattered on the ground. Babylon, 
symbolic of humanity's spiritual rebellion against God. Remember, it was there at the Tower of Babel when humanity tried to build a monument to its own greatness. And so God came in judgment. He, he confused the languages, scattered the people. And from there, false religion multiplied all over the world and has continued to multiply ever since so that today there is somewhere between 4,000 and 10,000 counterfeit religions. And throughout the Bible, God compares false religion to the work of a harlot. You see, a harlot is an unfaithful person. And it's someone who entices others to be unfaithful. And so throughout the scriptures, God compares the worship of false gods to spiritual harlotry. There's an entire book of the Bible dedicated to this theme. The book of Hosea. This is how God looks upon false religion. He sees a people that he created for his own glory, a people made in his own image, a people that he created to love and worship and serve him. But instead of that, they have turned away from him and they've bowed down to other gods, gods that they made with their own hands, gods of wood and, and stone or gods like power and fame and pleasure, or maybe they worship their own greatness, making a name for themselves. You see, false religion in all of its varieties is essentially the same. It is spiritual unfaithfulness. It is walking away from the one who loves us and made us for himself, turning from him. And going to others, giving our affection and our worship and our loyalty to others. And so the Bible routinely, routinely refers to false worship, false religion as spiritual harlotry. And Babylon is the ultimate example of this. From the Tower of Babel right on through her whole history. My friends, the woman riding the beast represents counterfeit religion. During that coming tribulation period, there will be a vast system of organized religion, and it will all be partnered with the beast, and together they will work to keep people away from the pure gospel of Christ. You understand, before the tribulation period begins, Christ rescues his people. They will not endure that judgment. But that doesn't mean there will be no religious persons below. The world will be filled with apostate denominations and cults and counterfeit religions. During the tribulation period, perhaps they will all coalesce. Perhaps there will be an amalgamation a great organization that can bring them all together. And this organization will be the ultimate expression of humanity's spiritual unfaithfulness. And in that tribulation period, corrupt religion will partner with corrupt political, governmental leaders to form this unholy alliance all seeking to detach people from their allegiance to Christ, seeking to entice people away from the gospel of Christ, seeking to condemn them to false worship. In the beginning, the beast will find this woman very, very helpful, as so many other political leaders have 
in years gone by, found it helpful to have alliances with religious leaders, help them with their cause. And so they will, the Antichrist and his people, they will pursue this partnership. Even as they despise the woman, they will pursue partnership with her. This will not be unprecedented in history. Think of Nazi Germany, where the Fuhrer partnered with the German church to forward the Nazi party's agenda. It has happened before. It will happen again. They will work together for a time on this common goal, but by the end of the tribulation, the beast will no longer find the woman useful. And so he will turn on her and destroy her altogether. He will bring an end to false religion. He will direct all worship to himself. But then, friends, Christ will destroy him. Christ will destroy the beast. And so in the end, my friends, false religion will come to an end, and Antichrist and his kingdom will all come to an end. And here's the really encouraging part, verse 17. It will all happen just as God plans just as he plans for it. Verse 17, For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. My friends, even in these dark and cruel days when Antichrist is reigning supreme and his kingdom is extending across the world, even in this time where there's an unholy alliance between Antichrist's kingdom and false organized religion, even there, God will be at work. His plans will be unfolding exactly as he had ordained them. It will all happen according to God's perfect will. And in God's timing, it will all come to an end. The beast will turn on the woman, and then Christ will conquer the beast. So that when his son finally touches down on the earth and takes his throne, he will be the only object of worship left. It'll just be him. And for this, my friends, we have reason to rejoice. I know that it can be very discouraging, even today. We look around the world and our hearts just break to see men and women made in the image of God prostrating themselves before idols made of stone and wood. It breaks our hearts to see this. And it angers us to see false religious systems that have been built up, that are rich and powerful. They have palaces. And they have alliances with their governments. And they have, they have turned their religions into money-making operations. And they extract dollars from their people on the promise of escape from purgatory or escaping their, their friends and loved ones from purgatory, pay us this money and they can go free. It breaks our hearts to see the church scattered around the world in little assemblies, and they are poor and beleaguered. They seem to have little political power. But friends, all of this is coming to an end one day in that great tribulation period. Christ will first appear and rescue us 
Then he will bring his righteous judgments down on the world of unbelief. That will include the ungodly power brokers and the ungodly religionists who used worship as a means of personal gain. He will bring it all to an end. And then he will reign supreme. And we will reign with him. Did you notice there at the end of verse 14? The lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords, king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. He will return with his saints, and they will share in his glory. These are days of small things. These are days when the church is a scattered minority about the world, but those days will come to an end. And friends, we can rejoice at this. And I think we can also be patient in the here and now. We can be patient because we understand that everything, this time, that coming time, it all is unfolding according to the perfect plans of God. And I say they are perfect because when all is said and done, we will see that God has become most glorified through this plan, more glorified than any other plan could have done. And we, we will be more joyful than we ever could have imagined. No other plan would have left us so joyful by the end. It's God's perfect plan, and so we can be patient. We can live in these days of small things. We can wait for the consummation that he will bring. And friends, I think we can also live in optimism in light of these verses. The optimism that comes from people who know they are on the winning side. See, it doesn't matter what happens to us in the here and now because we will be vindicated on the last day. And so whatever we face, we ought to face as a people who knows that they are the winners, who knows that they are standing for what is true and right. Don't let anybody ever tell you that you're on the wrong side of history. You're not. You stand with Christ. You're on the right side of history. You stand tall. You be brave. You speak up for what is right no matter what the consequences might be, because you know you are on the winning side. My friends, Revelation chapter 17 is here because God wanted us to know this one additional layer of the tribulation period, that there will be a time when false religion reaches the ultimate ascendancy, but God will put it down, and He will win. And so we ought not to fear or to grow impatient, or to doubt. His plans will come to pass. And friends, let these be our takeaways from today's text. Let's pray together now. Lord, we thank you for Revelation chapter 17. The images are startling. They are disturbing. But so is the kingdom of Antichrist and the system of counterfeit religion that will work alongside him. Lord, we thank you for revealing to us that you have a plan to bring all of it, all of it to a just end. And that when all is said and done, your son will stand as the last and only object of worship and that we will get to be there right at his side, basking in it with him. Help us, Lord, to live these days with rejoicing, with patience, Help us to live full of faith. Help us to live in optimism, if not about the present, then about the culmination of your plans. 
And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.